For our scripture reading this morning, I would like uh, to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 31. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, if you're using a uh, Bible in the chair rack, it should be at page 952. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the, of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks, uh, to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, go ahead and keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. We'll get there shortly. Uh, But we have some important things to cover. Uh, I know you guys have opinions, and your opinions might matter more to you than to me, but, uh, you know, it's worth considering a, a great number of things. We'll only get a few of them today, but, uh, but really, you know, we could start here um, just to warm ourselves up. Is it more proper to, to pull the toilet paper from, from the front side or from the back side? Yeah, I knew you guys would have opinions. So when you clean the dishes, do you use a dishwasher or you just you know roll your sleeves up and just and just soak them right in the hot water and get to work. Now, if, if you use a dishwasher, if you want to be more specific, is it more proper to rinse the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher? Uh, what is a better method of education? Is it is it the public school system? Is it a private school? A religious school? Is it homeschool? When should you mow your lawn? How often? And, and, and at what length? And what pattern should you, should you carve out into your yard? Should, should you be a voting member of society? And if you were to vote, should you vote Democrat? Should you vote Republican? Should you vote third party? 
See, we, we could go on and on, and, and really, the point is that we are constantly attempting to, to synthesize, to organize, to systematize the way we structure our lives. Uh, from day one, from birth, whether you know it or not, we are creating and, and developing this, this meta-narrative, uh, this, this lens through which we interpret life, and this personal worldview that we create is how we then process all of life's major decisions, great and small. This is how we filter what we value, uh, how we acknowledge what is right and what is wrong. And when our worldview then clashes with someone else's worldview, we have an environment now that is ripe for conflict, disagreement, and disaster. The issue of how to pull the toilet paper from the roll or how to do the dishes, um, that might be confined to your, your home, but your, your politics, your economics, education, your moral philosophies, they will all soon experience friction once you walk out your front door and cross paths with your neighbor. And I know that some of us would, would really be quick to probably point out that some of these things um, are really just simple preferences. They don't matter that much, right? <laughs> uh, we might even verbally acknowledge that we could be wrong. Our opinions might be wrong. But deep down, if we're honest... Our default position is that I am right. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, I am right. Uh, Tom, you can tell me you're right. I, I am right. My opinions are right. Now, and if, if I am right, that means you are wrong. We think we, we are clever people. Uh, we think we are special. Uh, we think we are wise. We really do. Uh, simply put, we think that, that we know better than others. And sadly, it doesn't stop there, because the devastating truth is, is not that, it's not just that we think we, we know better than others. We think we know better than God. See, when we learn something that uh, is supposedly true about God, we are slow to, to accept these things as true if it conflicts with our way of life, of our, of our system of thinking. And so we say things like, well, God wouldn't really do that, or surely God doesn't expect me to change my life that way, or to think and behave like that. Or, or perhaps you've thought, you know, maybe... Maybe I just need to interpret that passage differently <laughs> so that it can be more in alignment with the way I function and the way I live. See, we're, we're constantly constrained with finding ways to fit, fit verses into our grid and, and confine God to the way we think and act. We're, we're constrained by the wisdom of our personal worldviews and we're unable and even unwilling at many times to acknowledge that it's quite possible that everything we think that we know, all the values we have, all the opinions we, we cling to, could be wrong. And not just wrong, they could be downright foolish. Foolishness. And perhaps, this God of the universe, 
he just might be right. <laughs> now this morning we are stepping aside from our study in Proverbs, as you probably were aware because we uh, had a reading from 1 Corinthians this morning. And we're going to take a peek into this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this local church in Corinth, a local church that was strategically placed in a very cosmopolitan port city, um, a lot of traffic, a very diverse population. And what we'll see this morning is that at least some of the Corinthians were placing far too high a value on human wisdom and, and human thought and eloquence. These, these men and women had an admiration for rhetoric and, and philosophical studies. They were fascinated uh, by the thinking of supposed experts of their day. I mean, these are what we would call basically the social media influencers of the first century. Um, those who have very strong opinions and you should want to follow them and listen to them too. The Corinthians were often more impressed by form and show, uh, smoke and mirrors, the presentation, than they were actually about the content and the truth of what was being shared. And so Paul's desire is ultimately for the Corinthians to know the gospel is, is much more than just another philosophical system that stands over and against the foolishness of others. In fact, I think we would see that that Paul is emphatic that our, our foolishness is pervasive. Our, our worldviews, though well thought out, intricate, and, and seemingly coherent, are fundamentally flawed. They are foolish. But it's not just the systems that are foolish. The people are foolish. We are foolish. I am foolish. So you and I, we need a fool to save us from our foolishness. We need a foolish savior to save foolish people. So this morning, as we carefully navigate our way through through this text this morning, I think it might be helpful to break our passage into three major thoughts that Paul has, uh, three thoughts that kind of shape the, the text that we're going to spend our time in this morning. Uh, the first, first thought or first point uh, could be summed up as this. We are foolish people. We are foolish people. The second would be that our Savior is a fool. We are foolish people. Our Savior is a fool. And the third and final thought uh, that we'll, we'll make our way to is that our, our purpose in life is to celebrate foolishness. To celebrate foolishness. Foolish people, a foolish savior, and a foolishness worth celebrating. So here we are, our first thought this morning, we are foolish people. Now, I can say that as many times as I like, and I, and I understand that this statement, that we are foolish people, probably shouldn't sit well with most of us. And perhaps it shouldn't, right? Uh, some of you here, uh, some of you that you know, self-proclaim, you know, self-deprecating individuals would be like really quick to claim that, yeah, I'm a fool. Uh, but really, a fool is not a, a title that any of us are eager to, to claim hold of. We don't want to embrace the fact that, that we are fools. The Apostle Paul, though, however, 
he moves really quick to uncover the church's infatuation with worldly wisdom by asking four rhetorical questions that expose the, the utter vastness of foolishness. So if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to have us look at just verse 20 and, 20 and the first part of 21 right now. So just a couple, couple of verses. But um, listen to the questions that Paul asks this church. He's, he says in verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The wise, the scribe, the debater. What do these three categories have in common? In this church, and for us especially, in our context, Paul is identifying people that are perceived to be the the experts. These are people that specialize in sharing their opinions. (laughs) Uh, If there's anything that they are good at, it's letting you know what their opinion is and that you should embrace their opinion as well. These are the, the, the philosophers, the pundits, the gurus, the influencers, uh, to them, form was far more important as, than, than content may have been. Uh, these are men and women, though, who, who did have a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life. made sense of life, it made sense of death, it made sense of the universe. Um, it, it was how they would order their choices, their values, their priorities. They had a well-organized system, a coherent worldview that conveyed a sense of power. And, and this is really how most of us operate instinctively. And it, and it shouldn't be difficult to see why uh, we want to have an ordered system of, of, of life. If, if, we, if we can explain all of life, we remain in control of it. Now, those who, who experience anxiety, uh, panic attacks, they feel a lack of control. There's something going on in life that they don't feel they have control over, and so they panic. They're anxious. But if we can have every answer to every possible scenario in life, if we have a, a system that completely explains the way the world works, we are the ones who are in control. And so it's easy to see that we want to know. We want to think that we have the answer. We want to know that our opinions matter. But Paul isn't questioning whether or not we operate this way. If anything, he affirms that we operate this way. Paul is questioning whether or not it is humanly possible, though, to make sense of life apart from God and his gospel. So it's, it's almost fair to say that Paul is addressing this church saying, will your view on politics, on economics, on science, on relationships, psychology, on business, will any of those things provide the answers and fulfillment that you need? Does communism or capitalism hold the key to a utopian society? Does the elevated virtues of democracy lead men and women to the cross? Is it ever wrong, ever wrong, to equate the American way, or more broadly, any democratic system, with the gospel? Is the American way the right way? Is there any human system of thought that can lead us to God? And Paul's answer would be a resounding no. To tell this church, there is no human system of thought that can lead you to Christ. 
His point is that no public philosophy, no commonly accepted wisdom, no system of thought can have enduring significance if its center is not the cross of Christ. And so our endless search for meaning and fulfillment in life through our own means is our default method of thinking and living. But, but more than that, Paul actually writes in an, that, that it's not just that we think this is a good idea. We insist upon this being our objective. Look at verse 22 in chapter 1. Just the first part of that verse. Uh, Paul says, For Jews demand signs, this is verse 22, chapter 1, 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Now why would he bring this up? Well, like the Jews demanding signs and the Greeks' pursuit of wisdom, we beg for God to show us more so that we can be absolutely convinced that our methods are better than God's. And we want God to prove that he is right. And so a, a few of you might be relatively new to this, this whole idea of church, of God, uh, of the gospel. Some of you may consider yourself on the fence of uh, I'm not ready to decide if I want to buy in completely to this brand of Christianity. If I really want to, to embrace this man that we call Jesus. And so, like the, the Jews demanding signs and the Greek pursuing wisdom, we want to see Jesus perform a sign so that we can evaluate him, so that we can assess his claims and test his credentials. The demand for signs from God is a prototype for every condition that you and I raise as a barrier to being open to God. And so we might say things like, well, if God would just heal me of this illness, then I will follow him. Or as long as I can maintain my independence in life, I'll accept him as a savior. Or I'll turn from my sin if God provides a better job or fixes my marriage or brings me a spouse or gives me a child. What we mean is if only God would do this for me, then I'll follow him. But in every case, Paul says that when you demand something from God, we are the ones who then are assessing him. He is not assessing you you are assessing him. And we're not coming to him on his terms. Rather, we're stipulating the terms and we must accept that it's his privilege to have us if we agree. And I know, personally, my self-centeredness is deep and it's, it's so idolatrous that I can find myself trying to domesticate God, to fit God into how I want to function. In my desperate foolishness, I can act as if I can outsmart God, uh, as if he owes me explanations for the way he does things in my life. I can act as though I am the wise, self-determining one, while he exists really to meet my needs. But the utter bankruptcy of all the world's efforts to know Christ was, as Paul says, part of God's design. And so Paul moves on to address men and women at Corinth and ask them to assess just how wise and special we really are. He, he begins by saying, where are these wise people? 
stop demanding things from God. And now he goes on to basically describe, this is really who you are. And so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 20, 20, sorry, 20, verse 1, verses 26 through 28. And this is what Paul writes to this church. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul decisively rejects any criteria that we would have as to why and how God should should call us, should choose us. And Paul doesn't mean here that that there were none who were chosen that could have been wise or powerful or have a certain status. When he says not many, that implies that there were indeed some, though certainly not exclusively all of them. But he does say not many were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of nobility. What he says is, you are weak. You were low. You were despised. You were lost. You were blind. You were dead. And yeah, you were foolish. I mean, just imagine for a moment all the things you could be doing right now. Some of you could be out on the lake, cruising around in your boat. It's nice out. It's a nice sunny day in August. You could be mowing your yard, just out for a ride. You could be heading up north right now to go camping. You could be meeting with your friends for brunch somewhere. Uh, Just a little after 11, you could have slept in, just kind of enjoyed a nice quiet morning at home. Instead, you came to sing songs to a God who became a man, died a horrible death, publicly humiliated, spilled his blood so that we may be made clean. And so if you're here this morning, you made a foolish choice. but it also could be the wisest choice you've ever made. We are foolish people. And we would have remained foolish people had it not been for the foolishness of one man. As foolish people, we were in desperate need of a foolish savior. And so Paul doesn't begin by, by telling the church at Corinth that you're just fools <laughs> and that there's nothing to hope for. But he tells them about the story of a foolish Savior. Our, our Savior is a fool. And it's interesting to think about the, the number of questions we could ask ourselves. You know, how could a man nailed to wood claiming to be God be the solution to all of your problems? <laughs> how is that possible? 
But listen to how Paul describes the message of the Savior, the gospel, the good news of the one who came to redeem and rescue his people. Paul, Paul does not say that he preached Christ resurrected, but Christ crucified. Go back to our passage, verse 18 of chapter 1. And Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verses 21 through 24, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. When Paul writes to this church, he does not refer to Christ's death with embarrassment, and he doesn't skip over any awkward facts to make it sound better. Crucifixion and resurrection belong together, but certainly as a part of the gospel story, but the cross, the cross was the most repugnant of all. I don't know if uh, many of us have heard of the Roman statesman, statesman Cicero, but um, he lived in the first century uh, B.C., and, um, and he wrote the following. He said, the very word cross, the very word cross, should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, and from his ears. To proclaim a crucified Jew from some backwater town of the Roman Empire as being a a divine being sent to earth, God's son, Lord of all, and the coming judge of the world, must have been thought, and still is thought, by any educated person to be utter madness. Now imagine if you and I learned, not only is there a God, but that he had a son who was a man, and he lived on a farm down VV in Merton. And he was brutally murdered by the farmers in town, and they hung him from a silo for all to see and mock. And somehow that if we look upon that man and believe in his works, you will be saved. There's a reason why Paul says, this is foolish. And the word he uses is not accidental. The the word that that Paul uses to describe the foolishness, the madness of this, uh, could mean mania. Indeed, madness. And and people people don't write off the gospel message as simply just being eccentric. It's harmless silliness. People write off the gospel message of this man, Jesus, because of the cross. Because it's dangerous. It's menacing. It it is deranged stupidity to believe in the crucified Messiah. From a Jewish standpoint, from their point of view, a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. It, It became a major stumbling block for Jews 
because Scripture brands anyone hanged on a tree as being cursed by God. Christ crucified is a blatant contradiction. It's like a conservative Democrat or a liberal Republican or a warm Wisconsin winter. A stumbling block. A contradiction. But the gospel transforms the cross, a Roman symbol, a symbol of terror and of political domination into a symbol of God's love, peace, power, and wisdom. And so how do people come to believe? How do people like you and I, who believe, how do we come to believe if everyone finds the cross foolish and repulsive? And this is, this is the very reason Paul is writing to this local church. He had, had it been uh, the way to God made through human wisdom or human systems of thought, salvation would have only been open to the intellectually gifted, to those with an IQ in excess of 130, to the young, to the beautiful, to the extroverts, to the educated, to the wealthy, to the healthy, to those with good behavior. But the power on the cross opens the way for God to choose people who are foolish and those people would overcome sin and evil. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-28, God says that he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God determined that men and women would come to know him, but through a means utterly unexpected and unforeseen by by the wise people of the world. And despite the world's grand wisdom, no, no human being would have ever dreamed up the scenario of a crucified man who claimed to be God. Belief in a God who who compiled his thoughts into a book recorded by men, a God who who claims to be sovereign, who is simultaneously loving and also a wrathful judge, a God who sent his own son to suffer and die a brutal, torturous death, is stupid. It's insanity. It's foolish. And it's the best news that we'll ever hear. In a moment of sublime weakness, it's the cross of Jesus Christ that most greatly displays the power of God. It's the most transparent, clear act of foolishness the world has ever known, the cross of Christ, in which the wisdom of God is most greatly displayed. The cross where a perfect sinless Savior became the fool so that you and I might be wise. We are a foolish people. 
And praise be to God that we have a foolish Savior. But how do we respond to such a staggering contrast between wisdom and foolishness in this world? Our purpose laid out for us in, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is nothing less to, than to celebrate God's foolishness. Our only response to this news is to celebrate the wisdom and power of God displayed in the foolishness of the cross. And this is precisely precisely what Paul wanted the men and women in Corinth to recognize. The word of the cross is not simply good advice. It's, it's not something that simply tells us what we should do, nor is it information about God's power. The word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus, that message itself is God's power. In verses 18 and 19, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but, but to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. The cross is powerful. The gospel destroys the invented human systems of the world. We are, we are powerless in every possible way when it comes to dealing with our sin and being reconciled to God. But, but where we are impotent, where we are powerless, God is most powerful in the cross. We are saved by God not because he chooses those who claim to be su- superior by some trait or some insight, not because he loves people that have well-ordered lives, or exhibit good behavior. He is determined to rescue those who believe in his Son. By his grace, we trust him, we rely on him, we, we abandon ourselves to him. He is our center. He is our rock, our hope. He is our anchor. He is our confidence. God's ultimate reason for his choice is of utmost importance to us because he chooses us in the midst of our utter depraved foolishness so that there's nothing to boast about in ourselves. In verse 27 through 31, Paul tells the Corinthians that God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In verse 29, he tells us why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has taken every step possible to shatter human boasting. And God acted to redeem fallen men and women like you and I because he is gracious And for no other reason. He doesn't owe anyone in the world forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Paul, in in this letter, in this brief introduction to his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul is, he's not saying that Christians have nothing to boast about. He is saying that if we boast about the things of the world and what the world boasts about, then we're boasting about the wrong things. And what are those things? Our, 
our investments, our life savings, our financial stability, our health, a stable job, a solid marriage, gifted children, a prestigious education, good moral behavior. While not necessarily unworthy accomplishments, those things will never hold significant and lasting value in the end. All those things will vanish, and only the message of the cross will matter. Only the righteousness of Christ will endure. And in the end, all we have is Christ. Or else you and I have nothing. The song we're about to sing has the following lyrics. These aren't all of them, but these are just some of of what we're about to sing, and I want to read a few of them for us. The lyrics go as follows. It says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my soul forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. How foolish to believe God became a man. (laughs) That man was nailed to a piece of wood, tortured, murdered, ridiculed, slandered. Some of you here, you've looked upon him and you've trusted in his accomplishments in this life. A man that died and then was reborn. Your sins are completely and finally forever forgiven. And you did nothing. He did everything. Yeah, that defies human wisdom, doesn't it? It is utter nonsense. That's foolishness. It's the power of the gospel. It's the wisdom of God. Men and women of Grace Hill, we need a foolish Savior to save a foolish people like you and I. And we have one. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. I will sing once more to this great God this morning. Father, the word of the cross is foolishness. 
It was foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, to us who are being saved, it is your power. Father, it pleased you to the folly of what we proclaim about your Son, to save those who believe. Thank you for the foolishness of the cross, for your Son, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Lord, may our soul forever be our only boast is you. Amen. Let's sing.